the heart of this psalm, let's go back there. It's a song of loving wonder. David, he says in the psalm, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too lofty to attain. He sort of can't find a way to describe it. He recognises that creation, which he can see in the miracle of his own physical body, is beyond his explaining, beyond his understanding. And even now, I think it's fair to say, 3,000 years later, and despite all the wonders of modern science, it still, in truth, is the same. Science reveals an enormous amount to us. It would be foolish, stupid, to say it doesn't. What it tells us is the wonder in the design and the working of our bodies. But it still doesn't explain in any meaningful way how it happens. We know, yes, sperm, egg, moment of time. And I've seen it on, I've seen it on video films, you know, where they do sort of IVF experiments and they watch it in a microscope. And you see this moment of life where the two sperm and the egg come together and then this something happens. One cell becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, 16, 32, off it goes. Blah, 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 blah. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. They can see it happening, but nobody understands, well, how does it happen? How does something that's not living become living? Science doesn't know. It just says, it does. No, it just does. There are, in reality, only two viewpoints, aren't there? Either there is a creator God, or there isn't. And if there isn't, life's an accident. The net result of blind natural forces. But what a natural force is, and how a natural force comes about, well, that's an interesting question. Where did that come from? But I won't go there. <laughs> Paradoxically, it seems to me, the more that science reveals the intricacy of our bodies, of our physiology, the more faith it needs to continue to believe that it's all an accident. It seems to get harder and harder to believe that. I'm going to share with you, I'm going to have a science lesson now, a few fascinating little bits of science. Number one, if you're going to come, there we are. Every second, every second, over 100,000 electrochemical reactions take place in your brain. What's an electrochemical reaction? Something's going on inside your head, made caused by chemicals, which creates electricity. And those electricity, little sparks, jump about between all the billions of cells in your head making thoughts. A hundred thousand of those every second in every head in this room, there or thereabouts. Did you know that your brain has 
10 billion nerve cells. And the only purpose of those 10 billion cells is to capture what we see, what we hear, what we feel through our senses. Every eye, and you've got two of them, contains 100 million light receptors. Every eye. And those who cannot see live without that wonder. And it's hard to live without that wonder. And we should remember that when we work alongside, come alongside people whose eyes don't work that way. It's really important. We take our eyes entirely for granted. Each eye contains a retina. And the retina has four layers of cells built into that little transparent surface. And those four layers and all those nerve receptors make 10 billion calculations a second long before any of that gets anywhere near your brain. It's assembled all that light and sends it down your optic nerve to your brain. And when it gets into your brain, it goes into this thing called the cerebral cortex, which is very grand. And a, more than a dozen parts of your brain then fire into action for every little bit of light that's come into your brain to work in harmony, simultaneously, for you to assemble what you're seeing and make sense of it. Your tear ducts in your eye produce a fluid which is specifically designed to fight bacterial infection in the air. Why is that? Well, your eye is a little bit of your brain that's poking out. That's what it is. It's connected to your brain. And it needs to be protected. Because it's got to be open to the air to see things, therefore it needs to be protected. So your tears produce something exactly necessary to keep it safe. But when you cry, different tears are made. They're not the same. They, they serve a different function. And you, your body, in some peculiar way, produces different tears when you are sad. As you move around, even when you're sitting still, every time you flick your eyes, turn your head, move an arm or a limb, your heart responds. It either slows down or speeds up. It's a continuously adjusting instrument. Did you know that your heart, it beats 100,000 times a day? Quietly. Sometimes, not so quietly. But there it is, 100,000 times a day. Every day, your blood in you flows 12,000 miles. You've got 12,000 miles of the stuff inside of you. And if you put those thousands of miles and the hundreds of thousands of beats together, your blood travels 168 million miles in the average lifetime. And we don't pay it any attention at all. It's just going on. Every square inch of your skin says he, has several hundred little glands in it to produce perspiration, or sweat, if you like. 19 feet 
of blood vessels are in each square inch. 20,000 nerves are in each square inch. Your stomach, which may be rumbling, has 35 million glands in it which produce chemicals which break down food into energy which you can then use. That, that, those glands produce a chemical which dissolves things. So it has the power to dissolve you. The stuff in your stomach would dissolve you. So how does that work? Well, your stomach relines itself every three days so that it doesn't dissolve you. And again, we don't pay it any attention at all. Your body is extremely efficient. You might think it's not. Particularly if it's older, you might say, oh, my body's not very efficient. But it is actually very efficient. It allows you to ride a bicycle for an hour on the equivalent of three teaspoonfuls of petrol. Not that I would recommend that. <laughs> not even unleaded, no. At the atomic level, the miracle of creation is even more astonishing. A single human chromosome, and you've got millions and millions and millions of them in you, contains 20 billion bits of building information. 20 billion little bits of information to build you. That's like 4,000 books, each of 500 pages, in each little chromosome. So when your cells first divided from one to two. There were 20 billion bits of information to build you. And all of those things made each one of us. And every piece of life on the planet. Now all of these facts, and there you could go on forever. There are, you know, it's just that the world around us is astonishing. These facts that I've just quoted come from a book from a guy called Carl Sagan. He's died a few years ago. He, he made a TV series called Cosmos. And Carl Sagan was a very, very clever scientist. But he believed that despite the evidence of all of the facts that he presented, that all of life all came into being all on its own. And it evolved entirely on its own, by accident, according to a set of laws that apply universally, which also came about by accident. They just did, by chance. And I, I, don't, know, I don't know about you, but to hold such a peculiar view, it seems to me, in the face of such wonder, requires far more faith than I've got. I'm much, I'm much more happy trusting in a loving creator God. I don't know what it is that makes people who see the science believe it's an accident. Maybe it's a form of pride. There can't be a God. We must be in charge of it ourselves. Maybe that's what it is. Let's come back to our psalm, because the psalm is far more than a Bronze Age biology lesson. It's a poem about the all-seeing God. And the all-seeing God, despite knowing me 
and knowing you individually, one by one, better than you know yourself, continues to love you, to care for you, to walk through life with you, to guide you and protect you. These are the opening words from that psalm in, written in the contemporary English version of the Bible. Let's have another look. You have looked deep into my heart, Lord, and know all about me. You know when I'm resting or when I'm working, and from heaven you know my thoughts. You see everything I do, everywhere I go. Before I even speak a word, you know what I will say. And with your powerful arm, you protect me from every side. I can't really understand all this. Such wonderful knowledge is far above me. Steve asked earlier when he was talking to Steve and Becky, who'd been here in the church 21 years ago and a handful of us put our hands up. I came to this church 21 years ago and on that visit, on that very first visit, I encountered the, God, the grace of God. I can honestly say that I fell into the arms of grace. That's what it felt like. At the time, I was a successful professional IT man. I led a department of several hundred people. I was passionate about my work, but I was empty inside. Empty. And the love of this fellowship for the God they knew loved them deeply was tangible. You could touch it almost. You could see it and you could sense it in the passion of the singing, the power of the prayers and the teaching Sunday by Sunday. And I am thrilled to bits to be still a part of this church all these years later doing exactly that. It thrills me to bits. But I can also relate personally to the words in verses 7 to 12. Here they are in the CIV, CEV translation. Where could I go to escape from your spirit or from your sight? If I were to climb to the highest heavens, you'd be there. If I were to dig down to the world of the dead, you would be there. Suppose I had wings like the dawning day and flew across the ocean. Even then your powerful wings would your powerful arm would guide and protect me. Suppose I said, I'll hide in the dark until night comes to cover me. But you see in the dark, because daylight and dark are all the same to you. And after coming to this church for about six or eight weeks, I knew that I was approaching a, a pivot point, a decision point for me. Was I going to entrust myself into the arms of God or not? Or was I going to continue to tell myself, I can do it on my own? Maybe, when I think about it, Maybe I was just afraid that if I decided to follow Jesus, he would ask too much of me. He would change too many things. That's why I ran away. I did indeed have wings like the dawning day, compliments of my position in IT. 
and I fixed myself a trip to America so I wouldn't have to be here. That's what I did. And my work at the time was involved with the gaming industry, serious gambling, slot machines, casinos, and things like that. And so I went to the mecca of this sleazy world. There it is. Las Vegas. That's where I went. But despite my best efforts to sink back into this world of easy money and very questionable morality, when I got there, God was already there, <laughs> speaking to me, encouraging me to turn around again. And after a day or so, in the middle of the night, I picked up the phone and rang Stephen. I didn't have any idea what the time was in the UK. It was the middle of the night in Las Vegas. But he was there. And I remember his opening question. He said, Hi, Martin. Where are you? <laughs> and that slide wants to come on, please. Thank you. Where are you? It was a very innocuous opening remark, I expect. I can't speak for Steve, but I doubt he thought they were in any way prophetic words. But they were very, very powerful words. They were sort of penetrating words. Where was I? I was, in truth, running away. That's what I was doing. And I knew it. I knew it. And in that moment, when Steve asked me that, I knew I didn't want to run away anymore. And 36 hours later, I was back in the UK. And in a time of quiet conversation with Steve, I asked Christ into my life. And in the closing lines of this psalm, I asked God to look deep into my heart, to find out everything I was thinking, and do not let me follow evil ways, but lead me in the way that time proves true. And so it has been. That prayer was answered for me on June the 12th, 1997, 21 years ago. And six months later, on the 7th of December, I was baptised here in that pool. So let me ask you, where are you? Where are you? Are you at a place of decision? When I ask you the question, where are you? Does that turn something inside? Where are you? Do you keep coming to church Sunday by Sunday, but at the same time putting off deciding to let Christ in? Maybe you tell yourself, I don't know enough yet. I don't know enough. But is that really so? Or is it the decision itself that's the stumbling block? Are you afraid like I was? 
that choosing a life of faith changes things too much, that Jesus will ask too much of you. I know what that feels like. Let me say this to you from this psalm. Jesus knows your every thought. He has searched you inside and out. You may feel you don't know enough, that you aren't sure. But Jesus is sure about you. He doesn't need any convincing. He loves you for who you are, as you are. And he made you in every detail. Where are you? Maybe you're somewhere else. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while. A long time, maybe. Maybe only a year or two. It doesn't matter. But in some way, maybe this morning, you feel your walk with Christ is hard. Are you tired spiritually? Are you weary? Maybe you feel that you're off course in some way. And the joy and the lightness of spirit that you had has faded in some way. Do you feel worn around the edges? Can I say to you this morning, Jesus knows your every thought. He knows your every feeling. He sees how busy you are. He sees how tired you are. He knows how you feel even before you try and explain it. He is there at your side, to your left, to your right. He's behind you, he's in front. He's above you, he's below. He's within you. Your life is truly in his hands. Let him nourish you afresh. Let him renew you. Where are you? Later on this morning, we'll have a chance, an opportunity to pray. And there are various members of the, minister, of the, of the prayer team of the church. Can, can the prayer team put their hands up? Members of the prayer team here this morning. So there's three or four here. There's some here, at the back here, and this side. So there'll be a member of the prayer team near you. And at some point this morning, later on this morning, we're going to get a chance to pray. And if you want someone to pray with you or for you, in response to that question, where are you, please take that opportunity. They'll be wearing a lanyard which says prayer team and their name. Okay. And when we get to that point, I'll perhaps ask the prayer team to stand up and be available, keep their eyes open for those who wish to be prayed with. So here we are in the middle of this psalm and we see two things, don't we? We see the amazing wisdom and power of a creator God whose genius is surpassed, is unsurpassed, sorry, by all the experts in the world there ever has been and there ever will be and whose love for his creation knows no bounds. And then this psalm adds another third layer. It's a layer of grace. And it's scattered across the psalm in many verses. 
like, it's like dust expressed in many different ways. In verse 3, he is there when you rise and when you sleep. In verse 5, he goes with you everywhere. Verse 10, he won't let you fall no matter where you are. Verse 13, he was there when you were conceived. In verse 15, he was there throughout your nine months in your mother's womb. Verse 16, he is there tomorrow as yesterday. Every detail of you is known. And verse 18, he's with you by day and by night forever and ever. The message of the psalm could not be clearer. God will never forsake you. Never. He will never let you go. You know, sometimes the pressure of life can cause us to doubt. Doubt our faith, doubt ourselves. Our natural humanity, our inability to see what tomorrow is going to bring can get the upper hand at times. And we can become sort of anxious. It can squeeze us. And I confess, I get anxious about the future. I get particularly anxious about the future for those I love most deeply. For my children, for my wife, for my grandchildren. And my desire is for them to know and embrace the certainty of God's love. And it churns me up inside. It upsets me when I dwell on it. It's not a fear, it's not a, 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 an upset caused by fear. It's an upset born of love. I love my family. I want them to know the God of love. And I expect that many of you feel exactly the same way. You want your family to know the God of love. Rest easy, can I say to you, can I say to me. The certainty of God's presence with us is an ever-present truth. When we feel that God's far away and that it's all down to us, there's no one here to help. Remember, remember, God is with us by day, by night, always, without fail. So we have a threefold blessing in this psalm. Firstly, the amazing creation power of God. He is the source of all things, all life, and within whose hands everybody, everything exists. John writes in verse 1, 3, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. Nothing, says my Bible. Secondly, a God who loves us with a boundless love which we know as grace, the gift we don't deserve, the gift we could never earn. John, in his first letter, writes, God is love. Not God is loving, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. Amazing words. Amazing. And thirdly, God is ever-present. He watches over us by day and by night, forever and ever. From the distant past, that's been so. Exodus 33, 14. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest, he says, through Moses. Right to the distant future. Revelation 21, 3. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling place of God is with mankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. From the very beginning to the very end. These are gifts that are too wonderful, too lofty, as David writes. One final thought. The psalm ends this way. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the ways everlasting. What David is doing, he's concluding by opening himself afresh to the penetrating light of God's gaze. He's not so much engaging in introspection, where you spend time head down trying to look inside yourself. He's rather eyes open, head up, standing in vulnerability before God, quietly. Knowing that you have nothing with which you can hide yourself. Man has been sowing fig leaves since the very beginning of time. We keep on trying to do it, don't we? Hiding in some way, not admitting, not saying. Don't need to say, God reads us like a book. I find standing before God in a time of silent prayer, a gesture I find helpful is this one. I stand like that. Nothing in my hand. Not even a projector controller. Nothing. It's a gesture which tells me, physically, that I submit myself to God. Because I know God will always do right by me. Always. Even when I know I'm in the wrong. I can be confident in God's judgment of me. Why? Because his judgment is bound up in his mercy. His desire is to be reconciled with me, not retribution. His desire is forgiveness, not punishment. I am safe within his scrutiny. So are you. You needn't be afraid. So can I commend to you this spiritual discipline? Take a pit stop. Take it every day. Just for a minute or two. On your own. Alone. Quiet. Ask God to search your heart. Test your thoughts. Be still before him for a little while. And afterwards, conclude with words we know so well. For they are words that Jesus himself taught us. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. That's essentially the same prayer that David uttered at the end of this psalm 3,000 years ago. Before, a thousand years before Jesus ever walked the streets of Jerusalem, David prayed those final words which are there in the Lord's Prayer. Bob, if I could invite you to come back with the musicians. I'm going to pray in a moment. 
And then Bob is going to lead us in a time of worship, two or three songs maybe. And I said that it was important to not let a morning like this go by without taking the opportunity to be prayed with or prayed for if the words that I have spoken to you today mean something to you. You know where you are. Can I urge you again? Don't let those opportunities go by. Would you like to stand? And I'm going to pray. And then the band are going to play. And the prayer team will be around the room. When the, music has, when the worship team have finished, we will come to the end of our service for the morning. Could I ask you leave more quietly than we perhaps normally do. We, when a service ends, we tend to be, we sort of go, oh, that's great. And we chat and we laugh and we socialize. Well, we're a family after all. But this morning, if I could ask you maybe to save that relaxing and talking and chatting until you're out maybe in the coffee lounge, because if those who want to be prayed for want to stay here and be prayed for, let's respect their prayer time. Let's pray. Gracious God, there is nothing and no one beyond your knowledge and love. You know us so well. You live within us by the power of your spirit. You live before time itself. You are outside of time. There's nothing in the universe that you didn't make. And nothing compares to you. You know us in all our failures. And yet you still love us beyond all measure. And your absolute and utter forgiveness we see at the cross. Complete and undeserved. And we know we cannot fall from your hands. Death has no hold on you. And by your spirit, you give us that same gift of eternal life. In you, through you, with you. Thank you, Lord, the all-powerful God, whose name is above every name. These things I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.